If you'll go ahead and take your copy of Scripture, um, if you don't have one right there in front of you in the pew back, you can grab one of those, the, the black Bible, or the black books, the Bible um, there, uh, or if you've got a Bible app on your phone or tablet, I'll let you go ahead and find the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going back into the book of Genesis, chapter 28 is where we're going to be, uh, looking again and picking up in the life of Jacob as he... Uh, before he becomes Israel, but as he is following the path of, of God. And, and today it's a passage uh, we were supposed to have a couple of weeks ago, but we had some severe weather come through our area, and uh, so here we are today with it. But we're looking at this uh, vision and dream that Jacob has on his way, and we're going to be looking at how the thread of God's covenant traces through Jacob and projects forward again to Christ Jesus. As we've been walking through Genesis, we've seen time and time again just the, the beautiful fulfillment of God's promise and, and the expectations of the future fulfillment of God's promise. And even today, we are waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. Uh, the, the day when we can see the beauty of our Savior face to face, when the toil and the, and the, and the tear and the, the work and the endeavor and the hurt and the pain and just the weariness of this life, this world, when it's gone, when we get to see him. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to dream. I've never had a dream like Jacob's dream, but I like to dream. The reason I, just, just be completely can candid with you, the reason I like to dream is because I kind of like to sleep. S sleeping is pretty good. Now, I've got three kids in my house, so we are blessed that pretty well, we've got three pretty good sleepers. Now, my wife's out of town this weekend. She went on a women's conference uh, with, uh, with a friend of ours from South Carolina this weekend. And, and so, um, trying to do some special things with the kids, you know, because they're like, well, we, we wanna, I want to take their mind off of missing mommy so much because, you know, mommy needs to get away sometimes. And so, we had what we call a camp out. Now, that doesn't mean we pitched a tent and got sleeping bags or anything. That basically meant we just blew up an air mattress and slept in the house. But we, we, we in our living room, we moved the table around and put the air mattress there because we had Caleb upstairs asleep. And I said, you know, we can watch a movie. We, we, we can have a movie night and we pop some popcorn. And I was getting a few things taken care of. And, and so, so we watched Mary Poppins Returns, which I did not know until it was about halfway over that it is a two hour and 10 minute movie that we started at 8.25 on Friday night. So finally, at 10.35, I'm telling the kids, Braden and Addison, good night, and I slept on the couch, and I slept good. I slept really, really good until 6.15 Saturday morning. And I'm woken up by... Addison, move. Addison, get off me. Addison, don't take my covers. I'm like, wait, wait, what time is it? It's got to be like 7.30, 7.45, 6.15. You got to be kidding me. 
I didn't even get to dream Saturday night or Friday night. But sometimes when we rest, we go into a state where, where we dream, where what's going on in our mind is played out on the, the, the screen of the back of our eyes and we can see beautiful. And sometimes we can daydream. Sometimes we can live in fantasy world. I do not believe that what Jacob experiences is fantasy, but a real encounter with God as we look at his life together. I believe this dream was a true experience and not just a projection of the psyche. Let's look together in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 20. 22 together, one of our shorter passages in the book of Genesis. Don't worry, we'll make up for that soon. But it says, starting in verse 10, Jacob depart, departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and laid down in that place. There he had a dream, and behold, there was a ladder set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon this ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, and you will spread out to the east, to the north, and to the south. In you and in your descendants shall all the families of all the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will, be, I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not even know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of the place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God is with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and gives me the food to eat, garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, and then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Let's pray together. Father, your word is magnificent and beautiful. Because in your word, we are consistently reminded of the peace of your presence and the promise that you have made. And Father, while today we're looking at a specific person in a specific time and the particular promise that you made to Jacob, we understand by extension through our faith in Christ Jesus, you have made a strong promise to us and we ask that you would give us the ability to worship in your presence this morning as we look at your word. Give us ears to hear, give us, give us eyes to see what is true, but Lord, give us feet and hands to go forward and serve with a joy in our heart because you are our King. Lord, we love you. We, we love you. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we get into this passage 
and we see a couple of things take place. So here's the structure. You've got it there in your worship guide. We've got three things from the passage we're going to look at. We've got a main point. And on your outline, there are four uh, connections, but we actually have a fifth one we're going to make at the very end. So hopefully you can uh, squeeze it there at the bottom. But we start off this passage with, the, with seeing that Jacob is setting off to go find his wife. Jacob is departing the land of his father. Now, if you'll remember, uh, his departure from the house of his father is really not on amicable and peaceful terms. Um, Jacob's been the, the, the pesky younger brother, even if he was only born five minutes after his brother Esau. He's cheated him out of his birthright. He has now come in and stolen the blessing that Abraham was going to, or excuse me, that Isaac was going to hand off to Esau rather than to, uh, to uh, Jacob as it was supposed to. Remember, the Lord had already told Rebekah, their mother, that the older would serve the younger and it would be the younger that would inherit the promise and the blessing. And Isaac was going to give it to Esau and and. Rebecca heard and she devised the plan and sent Jacob in and Jacob disguised himself as Esau and Esau is angry. He is not happy with his brother and he wants to kill him. Well, Rebecca finds out that the older brother wants to kill the younger brother. And she said, you know what? I've read this story before. I remember what happened to Cain and Abel because I've heard about Adam and Eve and their children. I don't want to lose my son. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my, I'm going to send him uh, to, to my husband husband Isaac and we're going to send him off to my brother Laban's house to find a wife and so she goes to Isaac and says Isaac these Hittite women are not good enough for Jacob wait a second Esau's got a Hittite wife or two doesn't he oh these Hittite women they are not good enough why don't why don't we send Jacob off to find a good wife wait a second what about Esau? He's married. There's that in-law problem going on there, right? And so Jacob blesses, or excuse me, Jacob is blessed by Isaac and sent off. And it picks up in verse 10. So Jacob departs from Beersheba and went towards Haran and he came to a certain place. So he's on this journey. And he's traveling to follow uh, the, the direction of his father. He doesn't know everything going on uh, with Esau. He doesn't know, understand everything with the background. He just knows he's being sent to go find a wife. So he's on his journey. And, you know, sometimes you get tired when you've got a long journey ahead of you, right? Especially if you're having to go by camel or donkey or something. It's easy now. You can jump in your car. You can crank up the AC, turn on some tunes. If you've got kids and you've got one of those DVD players, you can listen to a movie that they're watching in the background. Man, you can ride comfortably, peaceful. You can go miles and miles and miles in just a few hours. A little bit harder when you're out in the elements and you're going by the back of an animal. And so he got tired. And he didn't have Tom Bodette leaving the light on for him at Motel 6. He had to make do with what he could right there. And so it says in verse 11 that he came to a place just a spot. And he was so tired that he took a rock and laid his head on it. Now, I'm particular about my pillows. There are not a whole lot of things that I'm particular about, but I'm particular about my pillows. I had one pillow from the time I was 11 years old in sixth grade until the time I was 28 years old. It went with me everywhere. 
It didn't matter if I was going to be gone a week. Didn't matter if I was going overseas. Didn't matter where I was going. It went with me everywhere. I put it in a new pillowcase. In college, everybody talked about the green pillow because I had it in this turquoise green pillowcase or some sort of dark turquoise green pillow. About the same color as the screen up here. So maybe that's blue. I don't know. They called it the green pillow because it went with me everywhere. And I know you're wondering what happened to the green pillow. I got the flu and I washed it and it got tore up in the washing machine. Do you know how long it took me to find a new pillow? I probably went through about 12 pillows. Every pillow we had in our house, I went to Walmart and bought a couple of pillows. Man, I couldn't find. Finally, I settled on a pillow. And when our kids help us make up the bed, I always go back behind them and put my pillow on my side of the bed. I don't think I've ever been so tired that I would find a stone and put my head on it and use it as a pillow. But then again, I'm a little bit spoiled. I grew up in 21st century America. Well, we didn't have to use rocks. We could use pillows. He's on this journey to find his wife. And it's while he's on this journey that God extends his covenant to Jacob. It says there that he goes to sleep, he laid his head down, and he has a dream. And in this dream, there's a vision of heaven and a ladder that extends from, from the earth to sky. This stairway that goes up and down, and he sees the angels ascending and descending all along the side. Man, man, think about the picture that is, that heaven's opened up, and he can see straight up, straight to God. That's amazing. That's amazing. I used to have this dream sometimes. Now, I told you I like to sleep, I like to dream, all those things. I used to have this dream sometimes. My dad was a research professor for the University of Georgia for 33 years doing beef cattle research. And there was a library on the campus of the University of Georgia. I don't know the name of it. I can't even tell you where it is. But I can picture the staircase that kind of went up the middle. Of it. I would have a nightmare about that staircase when I was younger. Because it was a staircase that was only wide enough for one person and didn't have any handrails. And it didn't just go up to the next floor. It went up like 30 floors. And in my dream, when I was a teenager, I would have this dream and I had it several, several times. I would always get almost to the top and fall off. And I'd always wake up before I landed because I didn't know where I was. See, Jacob doesn't try to climb this staircase. He's watching and seeing, and there is a self-identification of God. He says, I am the Lord. I am the God of your father, Abraham, and I am the God of your father, Isaac. This is a huge step for Jacob because he's heard about this God. He's heard about what was promised to his father and to his grandfather, but now he himself is coming into a, a connection and coming into an interaction with this God. And notice what God says. I'm going to give you this land that you're lying on. Remember, this is the promise that he made to Abraham. Abraham, you see all this land? He traces out Genesis 15 with his finger over here to the river Euphrates and coming up here by the great sea. All of this is going to be yours. 
When he comes to Isaac, he says, this is going to be yours. He says, I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants. Look at verse 14. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. I, Abraham, you are childless now, but one day your family will be able to outnumber all the dust of the earth, is what God told him in Genesis 12. Outnumber all the stars in the sky, is what he told Abraham in Genesis 15. God is extending the covenant that was made to Abraham and to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob there is seeing this glorious vision of the heavens open and seeing what God is doing as God is pouring into him right there. Wherever you go, I'm going to bring you back. But notice with me what he says in verse 15. I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land For I will not leave you until I have accomplished what I have planned. Ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the biggest, boldest statements that God makes to us even today. I will not leave you. And here's Jacob in the middle of the wilderness, sent out from his family. The Bible does not say if anyone goes with him. We are left to believe that it's just Jacob and whatever animal he's traveling on. Could be a donkey, could be a a camel, could be a horse. We don't know. What we do know is that here he is. In a place that is not his own, surrounded by the unknown, not knowing what's going to be waiting for him when he does get to Haran. All he knows is, I'm going there to find a wife. What if there are no pretty ladies there? What if all the ladies there are already married? What if they don't want an outsider? What if the fact that my mama left this land it caused her to be rejected and we didn't know it and I'm going and they don't want anything to do with me? It's kind of scary when you look to the future, isn't it? Some of you look three or four years down the line, you're like, man, I'm not sure what we're going to get to. Some of you look 30, 40 years down the line and you don't know what you're going to get to. Some of you with young children look like, I don't know what the world where you, my kids are going to grow up and be an adult are going to look like. The uncertainty causes us to fret and causes us to worry. And here is God right in the middle of what's going on in Jacob's life and says, I'm not getting out of your life until I am done with everything I've promised you, Jacob. That's huge. That is enormous. And that is the beauty of an all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God. And he extends his covenant to Jacob. So what does Jacob do? <laughs> it says there that he was afraid. He woke up and says, surely the Lord of God is in this place and I didn't even know it. He pulls this rock. I'm just going to sleep on this rock. I didn't know I was going to get there. It says he rose early the next morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He's anointing a rock. He, he, he is sanctifying 
a rock. He is setting apart as, as, as holy and special. And he sets it up as a pillar. He's worshiping. In response to the presence of God, Jacob vows that he's going to follow God in a ceremony of worship. Now, don't, don't hear me say that you need to go find a rock and pour some oil on it. God doesn't want your Quaker state, okay? He's not interested in, 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 in olive oil and vegetable oil and castor oil. That's not what it's about. He makes a vow here and says, I'm going to go this far and I'm going to do what I've set out to do and this God's going to be with me and I am going to follow him. Look at what he says. The Lord will be my God, verse 21. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now I know you're sitting there thinking, how is God going to live in a rock? Right? This stone's going to be the house of God. Don't we call these stones the house of God? Ultimately, what Jacob is doing is he is establishing Bethel as the place where worship would take place. And until the temple was built by Solomon in Jerusalem, the people of God worshiped in Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. Beth is house. El is God. It is literally the house of God. And it's not about the rock. It's about the place. It's not about the stone with the oil. It's about sacrificing all that we have to establish a place where the name of God will be worshipped as we follow him. Because ultimately what Jacob understood and, and, and the point that we take from here is that our uncertain futures must be entrusted to a sovereign God. Our uncertain futures must be trusted to a sovereign God. That's scary. I, I'll admit it, that's scary. Because the reality is, is you and I don't always know what God's going to do. He sees all of our ways. We don't see all of his. It's scary because we don't want to trust our, we don't want to trust our future to someone else. We want to trust our future to us. We want it to be about what I can handle, what I can maintain, what I can build for myself. At least that's what we say, right? But we trust our money to the bank. We trust our security to the job. We trust our health to the doctor or to the pill or to the hospital. We practically walk in trusting our futures to so many things and so many other entities that are ultimately going to fail us. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I just want to throw this idea out there. Suppose tomorrow morning you wake up to the news that Wall Street has crashed again with a greater crash than 1932. What's going to be your first response? 
I mean, realistically, we put a whole lot of trust in Wall Street, don't we? A whole lot. We've trusted our future into it. We've, we've bought into and built into our system of thinking that we have to have this 401k or this IRA or this 403b or this or that. All of these different things because that's where our future lies, right? And it's good to invest. Don't get me wrong. It's good to, to, to be able to provide for a long time. The Bible speaks towards investing. And the Bible speaks towards making sure that there is plenty to go for the generations behind you. That's a good thing. As long as it's not our ultimate trust. Or, or what if tomorrow you, you go to the doctor and he gives you devastating news that You've got two weeks. What's your response? The reality is that could happen. Everybody in here that's got a doctor's appointment tomorrow just kind of like took a deep breath. But it could happen. See, our future is not in finance or health. Our future is in a sovereign God who alone can protect us beyond what this life holds and do something greater. Our futures have to be entrusted to a sovereign God because only a sovereign God can see everything that the world will throw at you and everything that you'll throw back at the world and still love you enough to save you from it. Period. And the beauty is a sovereign God knows that we can't handle everything. I can guarantee you that none of you would get up from your seat if I handed you an envelope that had every detail of every day for the rest of your life and said, this is from God of how everything's gonna play out. You would not want to leave. Not because you're so enthralled, but because you would be scared of the contents of the envelope. Some of you might pull out the last page of the envelope and say, all right, what's on the last page? But you know, it doesn't matter what's on the last page. And the reason it doesn't matter what's on the last page is because in Christ Jesus, our security, our eternity, our destination has already been settled. It's already taken care of. It's already accounted for. We entrust our futures to a sovereign God because our future isn't earth. Our future is the abode of God, which is heaven above, where he is with us forever. Period. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this uncertain future and this sovereign God? And what do we do with what's going on in Jacob's life? The very first thing we see is that grace leads us to faith. Grace leads us to faith. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand that it is only by the grace of God that Jacob has this encounter with God. It is only by the grace of God that you and I have the word of God. It is only by the grace of God that we have the assurance of God's promise. It is only by the grace of God that you are breathing right now. And I'm not talking about just in the sense of physical breath. I'm talking about that you can even breathe the breath, the spirit of God. 
Because it is by his grace that he made sure that he interacted in this world in real time in order to provide a way for us to know him and not be punished for our sin. If the wages of sin are death, the moment we sin, we enter into death. But the moment that Adam sinned and ate of that apple that was not supposed to be eaten because it was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the moment he took the bite, the bite of that, death spread to all of us through his one action. Or maybe we could look at it this way. God said, Adam, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You would think that would be lethal injection, right? You eat of the sugar-coated poison apple, you take the bite and you fall over dead. But he didn't fall over dead. Instead, he entered a system of, introduced a system of death and decay into the world where you and I live. So we can rejoice with David in Psalm 103 where it says, how great is our God that he does not deal with us in accordance to our sin. Translation, he doesn't strike us dead the first time we sin. He's gracious to us. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Man, Jacob's just cheated his brother. He's deceived his father. And now he's on the wilderness all by himself. And God's grace intervenes in his life so that he can say with, with unequivocal uh, and, and unquestioned resolve that he can say, the Lord will be my God. That is a statement of faith. Today, you can look at everything in your life and you can look at the fact that you're sitting right here and know that God is gracious to you and that grace will lead to faith. The reason grace leads to faith is because of our second point, and that is this. When God intervenes in my life, it is for our transformation. When he intervenes in your life, it is to transform you. God does not come into your life to leave you the way that you are. I praise God for that. Not because of you, but because of me. Some of you are really nice people, and I'm glad I've gotten to know you. Some of you are really nice people and I'm glad I've gotten to know you and I would have hated to have known the lost you. You would have hated to know the lost me. Some of you can't stomach the not lost me. It happens. It says in this passage of scripture that Jacob's mind and his heart were transformed as he saw the beauty of the covenant of God. God did not come to him and give him this vision and give him this dream in order for Jacob to wake up and say, hmm, all right, well, let me go get married and then we'll see what we'll do about that. It was to transform him by his grace. It was to bring him from being a dead man walking to a living, breathing being with a soul that was captured by the grace of God. It's the same transformation he makes in your life. See, the, the issue that happens time and time again, and I've sat across 
Uh, I've sat across coffee tables. I've sat across the desk. I've sat uh, just across the aisle. I've sat in room and talked with people and people. And they'll tell me all these good things that God's done in their life. Oh yeah, I know God rescued me from that and God did this in my life. And I'll say, well, tell me about your faith in Christ. Well, you know, I haven't really gotten there yet. And I just want to like grab them and say, the reason God has been gracious to you and has intervened is so that you could be transformed by his mercy, by his grace, by your faith in him. Do not be mistaken about our God. He will not be mocked. His grace and his mercy and his forbearance in dealing with us is not a license to continue going on in sin. Or as Peter says, don't think that he's slow about his promises because God wants that all of us to be saved. And that's why the final day hasn't come because some of us have not given our lives over to him. He's not willing that we would perish. But sometimes we choose to perish. Because we can point and say, yeah, God intervened and God did this and miss what God ultimately did in Christ Jesus. He doesn't intervene to give you a a free pass. Was it at Trinity, Jacob, was it at Trinity that I was talking about Sonic the Hedgehog the other day? Yeah, Okay. Uh, I was trying to make sure I didn't do that in here last Sunday. So, so I, had, I spoke at Trinity's Chapel this week, Trinity Christian School down here in uh, uh, Peachtree, Sharpsburg area. Um, and, and so I like some video games, but I don't really like the newest ones. But I like Sonic the Hedgehog, the old one from like 1991. And like when you, when you, when you die in Sonic the Hedgehog and the guy comes, well, yeah, it picks you up and he kind of floats you back to this beginning. God's intervention doesn't float you back to this point where you can redo that course and make it back. God's intervention is to transform you right where you are so that you run a different course from here forward. That's what what his presence does. That's what he does. And God interacts with Jacob now so that Jacob could see this is what God is doing in your life and you can be transformed by God's presence and by God's provision in your life so that when you get to Haran to find that wife, you've got a different mindset of where you're going. God's interfering in your life today where you sit so that whether you go to the doctor tomorrow, you go to the office tomorrow, your life is now conducted in light of his intervention. Oh, he's a good intervener. He's a really good intervener. Third, we see that in light of his intervention, our response, the right response we have is to worship. Is to worship. Jacob wakes up and says, surely the presence of God is here and I did not even know it. And so, He sets up this pillar. And this is where the worship comes into it. See, in ancient Israel, they would set up different monuments and they would set up different, when when the people of Israel, when they crossed the Jordan River, one of each of the tribes of Israel, they took a stone out of the Jordan River and they held it up and when they got to the dry side, they built a pillar there. So that way they would remember, this is where we cross and they could worship God for what he had done in bringing them into the promised land. And here, Jacob's like, I'm going that way, but I'm setting this up because I want to know exactly where God came into my life and I could interact with him and we could bring worship 
here. And so he worships the Lord, his God there. See, we respond to God in so many different ways. We respond to God every time we hear the word of God read or preached. Whether we like the sermon or didn't like the sermon. And whether we like the music or didn't like the music. When we come to what we'd call a time of worship, we are ultimately making a response to the move of God and to what God is doing. And our response is going to oftentimes indicate to us what the object of our worship actually was. If we walk away from worship experience and say, well, I wasn't fed or that didn't appeal to me, then we've made ourselves the center object of this worship. Our response has been an us-centered response. But when we come and we see the beauty of God's word and the beauty of God's grace and the beauty of God's action in our lives, it's like, you know what? This is a mighty God and people were exalting the name of him. We're, we're making him the center. We're coming back to what he has done. And so what happens in this passage is Jacob demonstrating how we center back on what God has done, even if it doesn't really necessarily happen to us individually. Anybody put, put some oil on a rock this morning? Nobody? Some of you got a leaky car. You might have put a little oil on there. You didn't even know it. Yeah. Did, did any of you have this vision of this ladder going up and down from heaven with angels and everything? And if you see the heavens opened up and, and there he was right there? Nobody? Okay. So can we still worship God because of what he did in the life of Jacob? absolutely absolutely we worship God because we, we we respond in worship because we see how God's presence is not something that is far off but it is something that he does he uses as he invades our lives together individually and corporately when God intervenes and invades your life on Monday morning while you're sitting in your car, while you're sitting in your living room, while you're sitting at a desk, impacts the way God invades this space on Sunday morning when we get together to praise his name. When we sense the presence of God, our right response is worship, but sometimes we, we, we hold off. We, we shouldn't, but, but we do. Because when we intervene with the presence of God, we are given a choice between him and the flesh. And let me just be real with you. There is one that doesn't want you to worship him. So he will use everything he can in the flesh to distract you and pull you away. Let me encourage you, run to the presence Run to the worship. Run to the joy of the Lord. Because worship is actually more than just words. Worship is more than just words. It entails more than just words. It would have been fine, and we could have said that, hey, look at this, um, uh, verse 21. Then the Lord will be my God. Now, these are the words of Jacob. God's going to do all these great things. The Lord's going to be my God. But instead, Jacob acts on this faith. Jacob acts on what God has done. He sets up the pillar. He anoints it. He says, I will give a tenth to you. Those are great words. 
We sing a lot of great words. I, I, I saw on Twitter one time a few years ago, um, I think it was Paul Tripp, but uh, it might have been Tim Keller, one of the two guys, uh, said, um, on, had there on a little, little tweetable thing that you can you know, quote and use. It says, Christians, um, uh, <laughs> Christians don't lie in public. We just go to church and sing them. Whoa! That one hurts, right? I surrender all except for this, 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 and this. We, we, we sing great things. We worship great things. We put a lot of great statements out there. See, I believe and I'm convinced that our worship must be confessional. And, and what I mean by that is not that we sing about all the sins that we've committed so God will forgive us. But our sings like, like we sang this morning, the creed. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. That what we're singing is a confession of what is true to our heart and the conviction of our faith about who God is. And see, when we draw that conviction into our heart, and as we sing and as we celebrate, as we look at the word of God, what then happens is we have strength on which we stand to walk forward. Because we're looking at an uncertain future, but we know a sovereign God, so we worship him in spirit and in truth. And I told you there would be a fifth one there. See, all of us are looking for this gateway into heaven, right? Uh, all of us are looking for this, this, this ladder, this, this way. The people in Babel, they thought they could build a tower that would extend up into heaven. And here Jacob is looking and he sees this ladder. Man, I, I wonder if Jacob was tempted to try to climb the ladder himself. But you and I are consistently trying to climb ladders of achievement and trying to climb ladders of accolade and trying to climb ladders of acceptance because we, we want to work our way to heaven. There, there have even been songs written about trying to work our way to heaven. Um, uh, Alan Jackson had a country song, Where I Come From, Working Hard and Trying to Get to Heaven. Uh, the uh, the um, Led Zeppelin had Stairway to Heaven back in 71. There are all these things that are talking about and using this picture of what is going on, but the the ultimate picture of the stairway to heaven I'm going to show you how you can get this stairway and I want you to know exactly how you can get into this gateway of heaven it wasn't the heaven's gate hail bop comet uh, cold of 1998 or whenever it was what happens is Jesus shows us in G John chapter 1 verse 51 flip over there real quick with me John 1 51 write it down flip over there to it this is the culminating verse of chapter 1 in the book of John and what's just happened is Jesus has started calling his disciples and he tells, tells Andrew, go get your brother. And he goes to his brother and says, hey, um, I want you to come and hear this guy that we've, that we've met. I think he might be the Messiah. And it says there in John chapter one, verse 51, it says that uh, Nathaniel comes over to him and uh, is, is speaking to him, and Jesus calls him by his name. Excuse me. Um, sorry, it was Simon, sorry. Um, the brother of Peter. And he says, he found his own brother. We found the Messiah. Uh, he brought him to him, and he looked at him and says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated to Peter. It says, follow me. But then he goes on, Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. You are king of Israel. Philip goes to him. 
Um, Philip goes to Nathaniel. Sorry, I'm getting my, all my people mixed up. Um, and Nathaniel says to Jesus, how did you know me? And Jesus said, before Philip called you and you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him saying, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. But Jesus said, is it because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree that you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. You want that ladder that stretches from earth into heaven? He is Christ Jesus. He is the one that bled and died. He is the one that shed the glory of heaven and poured out his blood that we could be forgiven. He is the ladder and the angels of heaven ascend and descend on him to show the way that God has provided for you to know. And he says, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you until I am finished with you. Yeah, you want to know how you know the presence of God? Go to Jesus. Jesus. 